see, it's all about understanding the reality of our condition. And the reality of our condition is that we are light. We are reality itself. The substance, the context of this body is intelligence, is an extraordinary energy, is an intrinsic harmony. This body is in a unitary movement with the total cosmos. And that is a fact. It's a scientific fact. You know, the body does not have a problem. The mind has a problem. The thought structure of humanity has a problem. Hello, everyone. It's Christine. I am so very lucky today to introduce you to my friend and teacher, Mark Whitwell. If you're a yogi, you will recognize him from festivals and the master teacher circuit. He infuses any yoga style with the ancient wisdom of the Vedic traditions and has a very sweet but strong, uplifting, loving kindness. And if you've seen any of my books, then I'm sure you've seen some quotes from Mark in there. One of the best is, you are the natural beauty and intelligence of the cosmos, looking at the natural beauty and intelligence of the cosmos. Another is, breathing, meditation, and life are one seamless process, direct participation in the wonder of it. We utterly are, as autonomous living beings, in our total interrelatedness with everything. I also included our story of meeting in episode 40, Profound Meetings. Mark has taught yoga for over four decades throughout the Americas, Asia, Europe, Australia, Fiji, and New Zealand. And he's the editor and contributor to TKV Desikachar's book, The Heart of Yoga, first dropping out of New Zealand society and traveling to India in his teens. This was the beginning of a lifelong love affair that took him into the orbits of many of the great masters of our time, known and unknown, including falling in love with Swami Muktananda in the early 70s and accompanying him around Australia. But it wasn't until Mark met Krishnamacharya and Desikachar in Chennai, then Madras, in 1973, that he discovered a practice that could make his inspirational experiences stable and comprehensible, yoga. Desikachar and his father were living as ordinary, humble people, sharing their meals, on the floor of their home, not posturing as superior beings or power tripping. Mark fell in love with this and with the yoga he received. After staying in India several years, he traveled back and forth between India and New Zealand, set up yoga studios, and brought students to India to study with his teachers. And he later traveled to the USA. And noticed that what was being taught in yoga studios there bore little resemblance to what he had learned in India. When Mark reported this to Das Kichar, Daskichar asked him if he could perhaps do something about it, and the book The Heart of Yoga, Developing a Personal Practice, was the result. After arranging for the book's publication in the U.S. and hosting Daskichar in New Zealand in 95 for workshops, interviews, and book promotion, Mark continued to teach around the world to carry out his teacher's request while always returning to his homeland of New Zealand. During this time, he reconnected with U.G. Krishnamurti, a student and friend of Krishnamacharya. Yuji was an unusual person whose spiritual search had finished completely, freeing up torrents of energy in his body and allowing him to live his life freely, what is called the Jiva Mukti, or liberated person in the Indian tradition. This dear friendship with Yuji was immensely clarifying to Mark and helped him remove any traces of struggle and religious effort toward a future result from what he practiced and taught. Most of all, Yuji rage against the power structure set up by those selling spirituality as a commodity as something they have and you don't, and just feeding the tendency in humans to feel not there yet. So Mark continues on in this vein of radical non-hierarchy and non-dualism, whereby the teacher is no more than a friend and no less than a friend, 
the force of nurturing in local community, not a social identity, not a personal identity, not a status or position. Now, I was lucky to meet Mark in 2007. And in a timely reminder, which we also talk about in the show today, way back in 2008, we collaborated on the Heart of Yoga Peace Project, a 501c3 that he had set up that was dedicated to transforming individual consciousness and thereby world consciousness by developing yoga teachers and communities of practice in conflict zones around the world, beginning in the Middle East. The goals were peace through transformation of individual experience, cross-cultural understanding, and one-to-one diplomacy, and women's economic empowerment. And he had done a lot of teacher development in Esalen in the West Coast, Omega on the East Coast, also in Israel, regardless of the ability to pay, and really encouraged people to localize their approach to teaching in a way that makes sense in their home country, an authentic yoga that doesn't seek to supplant religious belief, but is a vehicle for fostering understanding and commonality between varied ethnic and national sects. So that plus community development, and they began to do some of this piece work. And he'll talk a little bit about that in today's episode. So let's begin. Please meet my teacher and friend, Mark Whitwell. I feel like our nervous systems are designed to take things within a relatively local frame. Like if you're dealing with 150 miles or so, you might get a conflict once in a while or a fire or a flood, but you don't get the trauma of the entire world coming through your newsfeed. Yeah, yeah. That's a fact right now, isn't it? Mm. It's like we have this inbuilt appropriate chemistry in us for when a bear is suddenly in our pathway and this fear and the stress helps us to run away or fight or whatever, but then the bear goes away and life carries on. But now the bear is there day by day, month by month, year by year. And I think that's an interesting theme for us to consider right now because that is the fact of our life. You know, humanity is traumatized and we've been born into a traumatized world. And that's a fact. And I think it's an interesting consideration is uh, what do we do about that fact? And can we be helpful at all? You know, what do we do now is the question. How do we live? Well, I'm trying very hard to live locally, you know, to live with the people that I love and the neighbors and friends and the people I come into contact with and to breathe into my own life and then help where I can. Yeah. But I, I do feel there's a a large body of knowledge and awareness around the level of trauma that the world has been carrying and new tools, whether it's the ancient tools of yoga made new or neuropsychological tools or the rediscovery of plant molecules or psychedelics, that there are a lot of people clamoring for it to end with us. And the insanity of these tribal and identity conflicts when we've been given so much seems to be like, I think our patience has run out. Yeah, so our patience has run out. What now? Right, what now? <laughs> well. Are you suggesting like Timothy Leary, like massive daily doses of LSD? Is that the solution? Well, you know I'm a fan of some amount of that. But I think borrowing, like like my teachers would call it, borrowing the light. Like you get a reference point. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that. But I think there's a quality of you can use those molecules to clear out accumulated trauma, 
but they still don't give you the capacity or the skill set to manage new incoming experiences. So you, we learn to feel what's coming at us and then process it and bring it through the body, communicate about it, take rest, do all the things that we need, shake it off. There are all these ways to release it from the body. But when it's coming in a fire hose pace, then I feel you either have to develop a tremendous capacity to hold it, like you have to be very, very skillful, or you have to learn how to gate it either energetically, which can be perceived as going numb, or to gate it um, from coming into your senses at all by disconnecting from the media sources. But then, of course, it's still in the collective field, so you're not really fully disconnecting. But what do you think? Any temporary relief, say it's a psychedelic journey or it's a successful meditation or a successful yoga practice or a successful therapy, the problem with all of that is that it's temporary, it's experiential, and it comes to an end. An experience has a beginning and an end. Mm. And the experience of being uh, of a temporary peace uh, puts you back into a profound distress when the experience is over. Mm. That's the problem with LSD. I mean, I'm not saying one way or the other, and sure, you, you're borrowing light. Maybe you see light. You have the experience. But it, then it puts you in the psychologies of not having that experience. Mm. Interesting. And so it's like an on-off switch, any methodology. My teacher used to say there is no, the body and mind is not an instrument. And then he'd pause, and there is no instrument. See, it's all about understanding the reality of our condition. And the reality of our condition is that we are light. We are reality itself. The substance, the context of this body is intelligence, is an extraordinary energy, is an intrinsic harmony. This body is in a unitary movement with the total cosmos. And that is a fact. That's a fact. It's a scientific fact. You know, the body does not have a problem. The mind has a problem. The thought structure of humanity has a problem. And I just like to make a blunt statement is that what is going on in the hotspots of the world right now has always been going on. Nothing has changed. It's just that it's become dramatically in our focus right now with the vulgar weaponry of high-tech war machine that has come with it. But even in you know pre-agricultural times, there were bands of tribes in, in Europe, for example, that would fearfully protect their own hunting ground you know, from wandering bands of others. It's always been happening. Christine, you know that years ago we had our peace project where we would fund teachers going into Gaza. It was it was a beautiful, tiny experience of Jewish and Muslim women practicing yoga together and creating friendships with each other. And in recognition of the unity condition that is the globe, you know, that is factually and actually uh, the earth realm and all who live here. <laughs> and yoga is that recognition, you see. And then the practices of yoga is participation in what is recognized, what has been recognized. And there we 
there we were with these beautiful women practicing well yoga of whole body breathing, refreshing, being in the light as the light. And I don't want to be use the word light in some sort of fanciful spiritual way, just, you know, the sunlight. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're under the same, we're fueled by the same glory of the cosmos that is our sun, you know. We don't have to get spiritual or be thinking about alternative realities or something. Just life as it is, is beauty. It's the one thing you can depend upon, everything in the natural world, including this body and your body and the trees, uh, is unspeakable beauty. Yoga is in recognition of that, and the practices are participation in this that we are. And I was just writing that, you know, with these vulgar wars, there's more than two. <laughs> there's there's Russia, Ukraine, Israel, and Gaza, and then the the war hostility is the you know inbuilt into human societies right now, everywhere, even at a local level. So I, I said that, you know, it seems maybe a little cute and a little twee or completely irrelevant to be speaking about yoga in these, these vulgar wars where the whole world is traumatized by right now. But I said to bring yoga into the world, to teach yoga in the way that is right for each individual adapted to every individual, no matter what their body type, age or health, and their culture or religion might be, including atheism, to bring yoga to the world is a completely valid and appropriate response in the midst of these vulgar... Conflicts. Yeah, everywhere, you know? I mean, yoga in the face of war, there's a, there's a sort of idealism to it, but really isn't that fundamentally what has to happen, that everyone comes, you know, settles down. You set, exactly. like when you have little children, you're like, settle down, you two, take a big breath. Yeah. You know, and you're sort of doing that on the collective. I mean, it feels to me that the most traumatized people, the people who have the least plumbed their own particular cultural violence stories are the ones that are drawn to power. And then they have the weaponry of nations at their disposal. And, and there, there, there seems to be a loss of understanding of the beauty of life and the value of life. Like it all comes down to the, the life of my people is valued, but the life of your people is not. And often not even the life of your own person. The tribal identities become just, it's just about winning something. And it, I find that incomprehensible as a mother just incomprehensible that you wouldn't care that these these young people are being blown to bits or any people regardless of age as as a mother yeah thanks for saying that and i think you know the world is now thrown into a great confusion you know individuals don't know what to think or what side to take because they see the images the horror on both sides and they don't you know and the nations don't know what to think or, you know, what direction to go in. Oh, because the political content feels like you're being played. Yeah. You know, that you don't know what to believe or what to trust. So what I can trust is that all of that, as you called it, vulgar, high-tech weaponry, is the ultimate disrespect for life, and they're both wrong. Well, my teacher used to say, it's not love that will save the world, it is fear that will save the world. 
when the, the mass fear of humanity is so sharpened that we could finally get on with the job of correcting the cultural fault that is there. You know, there's an ancient statement in Veda that says, wherever there is an other, fear arises. The assumption of the other is the problem. You see, when I said that we taught Jewish and Muslim women together who had no bone to pick with each other, none at all, and they probably were mothers, I don't remember, some would have been mothers. When they were taught the language of yoga, the understanding and the practices of yoga, in their lives, suddenly there was no problem. There was no issue. It had vanished. I've, e I've even taken to using the term a religious education. <laughs> Humanity needs a religious education. And to go back to uh, Krishnamacharya's words, you know, the grandfather of yoga, the founder of modern yoga, who made the statement, there is a right yoga for every person, no matter who the person is. Well, he made it quite clear in his 101 useful years that if you had a religion of faith, a religion of a certainty of a higher power, if you like, you needed yoga as the practical means by which you actualize the ideals of your culture. He actually said the ideals of your so sacred text are revealed through an appropriate yoga practice where religion is not a matter of seeking for God, but a matter of participating in God. And yoga is the participation, you see. So Krishnamacharya was a profound religious scholar and a profound yoga scholar, quite an extraordinary man of our time. And he committed his 101 useful years to getting that learning into the world. He didn't discriminate at all. Any, anybody, you know, he's, everybody should come, the East and the West. So this is why I call it actually a religious education, that people of faith need to have the yoga practices of participation in the given reality. In the creator, the one who is appearing as you and me and the trees. <laughs> What's happened is that religion without yoga uh, becomes a seeking for the other, you know, God as the other that you get to. And this is the problem that has reduced um, the human life to, to materiality, to, you know, property ownership to land ownership, to fearful religious tribalism. Mm. So if we get a yoga education and understand that the looking is the problem because the looking implies the absence, the looking is the problem, the seeking is the problem. What is a yoga education? What does that mean? How to move and breathe in a way that's right for you, for your body type, age and health, and adapt that to the framework of language or religious inspiration that you might have been born into so that your life becomes one of participation in the given reality, in the power of this cosmos, rather than seeking. When you're sort of breathing and moving around unconsciously, 
you know, your body's on an autonomic process. Uh, people might say, oh, why do I need to learn to breathe or to move? My body's already doing that. But there seems to be a quality of bringing awareness to that breath and movement that you're consciously realizing that you're participating. Some basic principles I'm calling whole body breathing foot to crown, or we call it the heart breath, where the exhale is the strength of life or the yang of life, and the inhale is the yin of life. So your whole body participation, sometimes we call it whole body prayer, in the power of this cosmos that brought us here in the first place, that is presently living us, you know, beating our heart, moving our breath and sex, this that is life itself. I am, and the Muslims are that, and the Jewish people are that, and the Christians are that, and the atheists are that, you know, and the Hindus and the Buddhists. And the trees. <laughs> you know, and the trees. And the flowers. And the birds. And the sun and moon and the galaxies. Yeah. This body is that. The body is the cosmos. What has happened to humanity, it's kind of a neurological fault that we looked up from the swamp. We could. We were an upright beast. We could stand straight and we could look out above the water <laughs> and see see the other creatures, see the trees, and feel, therefore, separate from them. And then we developed a mechanism called thought. We developed a mind, thought, you see. And thought is the evolutionary attempt to deal with the assumption of separation. And I wanted to, separation is a thought only. The body is not separate from its own context, this cosmos. This body is the cosmos. The glory of the cosmos is duplicated as this very body here, you and me, and everybody. But we looked up from the swamp, we felt fear. Wherever there is another, fear arises. We felt fear. And then part of the evolution of, you know, primordial humans was this development of a thinking brain core. So separation is a thought, but I also want to say that thought is separation. Thought is separation. We never solve the problems of thought with more thought. You hear me on that? We never solve the problems of, that thought creates separation and the fear of being separate with more thought, with more method, with more religion, with more meditation. Any knowledge that we have is based on fear. Knowledge is fear. And then we have the knowledge that, <laughs> that we've come up with about how to get rid of fear, and that is religion. And it's yoga. And knowledge it's is fear. Knowledge is fear. Yes. And the methods to get rid of fear is also knowledge. We learn, you know, we learn things such as, you know, there is God, be obedient to God, pray to God, or uh, meditate more and reside as consciousness. You know, walk around as mindfulness. Whatever method we're given is only in those knowledge systems. And knowledge is fear. All the while, you and me are the trees, and the trees are perfectly happening as the glory of this cosmos. Life is perfectly expressing itself through you and me and the trees, all along. So this, this, perf this neurological fault that you're talking about, this, this perceptual fault that makes it seem less than perfect or that we must be afraid, 
what what is happening there what does that have some kind of an intelligent adaptation does it have some usefulness that is also in god that is also in the creation why is that not then part of the perfect plan it's, well it's no i'm saying it's a neurological fault <laughs> we're in the stranglehold of thought yeah and look now we have you know worldwide religious tribalism and warfare in warfare with each other you know, if we all destroy ourselves, yeah, it'll be part of the evolution of the universe. You know, my teacher used to say, you know, the universe doesn't have a problem. Humanity certainly has a problem, though. And this is why I am saying it's a very valid gesture and an urgent gesture to make in this world when we're all totally traumatized is to start giving the world an actual yoga education that I call an actual religious education mm. that is not there right now. And if we do that, um, every individual who hears the argument, I call it an argument, I, I mean get the understanding that yoga holds and gets the practices that yoga hold, which is participation in the beauty that is already what we are. Each, each individual is then liberated, saved from the whole um, the whole matter of thought and its stranglehold, each individual, as Rome burns. But there is the potential that Rome could get it too mm. in the long run. Well, because Rome's a collection of people. Yes. So possibly. I told the story about the starfish on the beach where the, the water had gone out and the hot beating sun were burning up or the starfish were dying and the man was throwing one starfish at a time. And the other guy comes along. You see, you're a crazy person. You'll never save those starfish. And the man said, yes, but every starfish I throw back into the water is very happy. So in the meantime, you know, because we're, we were in the Middle East, Christine, there are people now contacting me and saying, what can we do? What can we do? And we all say it seems hopeless. But then one lady from Lebanon said, but let's get a website up that says yogahelp.com where people can get a little, or I think she actually said yogarelief.org and we actually got that website and we want to get it up. So individuals in the middle of this terror could perhaps get a little relief and a little rest, a little bit of embodiment in what's actually the truth of life, you know. But so it, I think it's a valid thing to be doing in the midst of the wars. Many lovely things have happened in the recent months, like a, a man in, in Germany who's Ukrainian, a Ukrainian speaker. He's now teaching U Ukrainian refugees in Germany, and he's teaching them in Ukrainian language and giving them just the, the basics, moving and breathing and resting. I feel those people are like antibodies in the system of, of harm. You're like a little happy blood cell running around and helping to heal what you can. You do what you can do. Yeah. Uh, there's no, you know, throwing up your hands. It doesn't help at all. At every level, giving a little moment of breath and pause and, and dropping in seems to be available. Yeah, and go local. Right? I have a phrase, stay local but go global. Say more. I like that. Yeah, and see, here you are, Christine. You're doing 
you've got 150 people in your circle, and apparently that's all that the you know the mind can take. Actually, <laughs> 150 very close friends, and after that, you know, it's not exactly uh, networks that you can operate in. But we can uh, communicate and broadcast, and now we have this miracle of technology. You know, Google and Apple and the internet and every other means that we have. And I think my intention is that, uh, you see, we've got our program called Yoga Education in Schools, yes, and it's a non-profit in the US, 501c3. And I want to see Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates see this, see how it works for the mental health of children, adolescents, and their parents. This is what uh, David Lynch was doing in the schools. He had these moments of silence, and they were successful in getting his program into the most troubled schools in the big cities in America. And they would have 10 minutes of silence at the beginning of the day, teachers and students, and then also when they came back from lunch, and breathe together and sit quietly and then students were ready to learn or to receive knowledge. But their nervous systems were so upregulated just from the process of getting to school and dealing with all the stresses in the environment that they couldn't learn. And the teachers were just as bad off. It's a very successful program. Yeah. Well, I want to see it go mainstream. You know, TikTok and everything else is either going to kill us or it's going to save us. It could save us. And we could get very busy. A little example, we have this wonderful yoga education in schools, and it's been accepted in mainstream education uh, departments in a few countries, not many. And we had a little child come and they do this six-week course, and the child at the end of the course said, I've got a new baby brother, and I get nervous with my little brother. But then I did the ocean breathing. This is what we call ujjayi, ocean breathing. And and I and she said, and I felt very calm. And the baby was calm as well. <laughs> and I I love that. Mouths of babes testimony. I know. And if we can teach a dear little child, it's for the happiness of our children. You know, and that yoga should be an education just like us. It should be a subject, like mathematics is a subject or literature is a subject. You know, please let us give our children and adolescents and the teachers of the adolescents a real education. I feel that that leads you into a feeling of so- of sovereignty in yourself. When you can breathe and calm yourself down and become self-referential. Totally. And that's not always something that's welcomed in power structures. Exactly. The only framework that we're born into is power structure that assumes that you're not there yet. There's somebody above you and there's somebody below you. And it's it's a complete hoax. You know, if there's any power in this universe, it's in you. It is nowhere else. It is what you are. There is nobody above. You are not second to anybody or anything, and you're not superior to anybody or anything. So that you know, that's a statement that can weave its power if people hear this. I'll say it again. If there's any power in this universe, it's in you. It is nowhere else. It is what you are. 
I say, you are the power of this universe. What could create a human body? What is living a human body right now? You are that. You don't get to it. There is no getting to it. There is no getting power from anything or anybody. It's an important thing to understand. I understand this this conceptually. And I was sitting with Kyle, my son, over the weekend, and we were having this conversation around becoming peace inside of yourself, like just allowing the allowing life. And he was very convinced that the dramas of human embodiment, like being a warrior and protecting the vulnerable, and that there's this entire in, enrollment in this idea that you have to be able to be a sheepdog and protect from the wolves that are inevitably coming. And I think this is, you know, also part of the Every, every group, whether it's a five-person, 12-person, 100-person, a, a state, whatever, they always seem to default to hierarchy. And, and, like, and even if it's not uh, specific, there are all kinds of casual and implicit hierarchies that happen. But even among the people who would like to see peace, they still carry the imprint of division, anticipation of conflict, and the and the belief that there's a dark and a light that are battling it out in some way. And I don't really know how to respond to that. That is why I'm saying yoga, a real yoga education, is the appropriate response in the short term and the long term. You know, decades from now, maybe humanity can understand that and you know, and bring an end to the idea that you get power from somewhere else that that can come to an end. And then you see the beauty of your own embodiment. You can see that the body is extraordinary energy, the body just as it is, that the body is an extraordinary intelligence just as it is. The body is in a, in a profound harmony, a relationship with its own context. You know, we said light, for example, air, the green realm, the water, the male-female uh, collaboration, which is the power of life itself, that everything is that unity of opposites, you see. And the, the, this understanding, and you know, there are not two things. There's only one thing. And I like to ask people, because it's easy when you contemplate the sun, and I say, you know, think of the sun, think of the light that is, in your body, the light that is your body. And I say, you and the sun, are there two things there or is there one thing? And people can go silent and go, oh my God, it's one thing. This body and the sun is one thing. But, you know, thought has created two things. Thought presumes that the sun is different from this body. Thought presumes that male and female are different from each other. That thought presumes that God is other. <laughs> you know, there's two things. There's me and God. And it's all just knowledge. This divisiveness of imagining that there's two things, imagining that there's separation is knowledge. And the whole frame of humanity is built upon that knowledge. You know, we are saying there have been cultures from the 5th to the 14th century, where this was state-sponsored education that, you know, we call it non-dualism. It, it got, you know, it came Vedanta. It became Buddhism. 
like a tacit understanding that there is only one thing. There is not two. And that is peace. Well, there's one thing and infinite expressions of the one thing in the sensory world. Exactly. And it does not imply negation of the individuality. It does not imply the negation of form. And this was big, you know, it's called Saguna Brahman, the Vedanta and the Tantra became one, one Dharma. And that is the individual form is God. And so to surrender to any form whatsoever, to surrender to your wife, to surrender to your husband, to surrender to your mountain, to your river, you know, or to receive, surrender is a tricky word because <laughs> it's used in warfare. <laughs> um, but to receive my ishta, you see, my chosen ideal, to receive that one, to be in the singularity with that one, and I mean tangible form, tangible person, tangible object, is surrender to God. This was the teaching of within the Guru Parampara of Krishnamacharya, where that Ramanuja of the 10th century started speaking this Tantra and Vedanta as one Dharma. The yoga must be there to deal with the problem of thought, because thought is presuming two when there is in fact only one, there is only God. And so yoga became part of that, it's called Vishishta Vedanta, modified Vedanta, and that's what Krishnamacharya held. And that is what this popularization of yoga in the world is based upon, that principle. I mean, I find it quite paradoxical that we can talk about thousands of years of knowledge and documentation and practices that are all designed to remind us of things that sh that at core should have no knowledge, no documentation, you know. And so when I have a group of people in a yoga class, they come in and we sit quietly for a few minutes and then they begin doing the breathing and the moving, just like you teach, you know, uh, begin the breath, begin the movement and the movement and the breath, begin, you know, like really following the breath. And I, within... Three minutes of that, the energy in the room has completely shifted. They're breathing a little bit more consciously than they were before. They're integrating the movement and the breath, and the mind has gone relatively still. In the beginning, when people are doing that practice, they struggle a bit in trying to follow this idea of the breath leading the movement. And, and that like, a, uh, uh, you know, like as if they've forgotten, but then they get in a rhythm. And by the time you've done a full practice, the entire body is sometimes a little sweaty, but always at rest. And then there's sort of a, a softening that happens in the room that allows whatever words that are going to be spoken to penetrate a little bit deeper, like the arm ring is gone. And in that moment, we, can, we consciously enter into a field of what I might call prayer, but of, of affirming our unity, our oneness, like you can't, it's almost like the dough isn't soft enough without the breath to have the thought of oneness. You experience and then you've been softened, like new neural networks are opened, and then you can dive into this idea that I am the power of the cosmos arising as me, that there is nothing outside of me that has any power that has 
any power other than the cosmos. I can dive into these thoughts that this is the given condition, that I love you, Mark, because you're you, Mark, as an expression of God, but not because you're an object outside of the same field as me, but that these ideas don't have anywhere to land unless you felt them. They become, they only live above the neck. Exactly. Yep. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Christine, for being a capital Y, capital T yoga teacher, for teaching the tantras that Krishnamacharya brought forth that disappeared after the 14th century and is still not there in the yoga industry. And you got that experientially in yourself. You're not just duplicating my words or somebody else's words or even Krishnamacharya's words. It's been your own experience. Well, it was it was difficult in the beginning. Now, I will tell you, I I've talked to you before about like the encounter when I first met you, and that I was very much loving and entrained in a yoga of achievement. I really, really wanted Ashtanga series three. You know, yeah. I was gonna, I was yeah. going for that, right? But the the idea that there was nowhere to get to was a shocker, uh, because my entire life had been built around there being somewhere to get to. And, and that was in yoga, and that was in my career, and that was also something I then held as a vision for other people, that they had somewhere they needed to get to also. So it became very judgmental frame. And I think that that's one thing that's happening in these tribal identities, is that you have this belief formed inside of your in-group that the other person or the other group should be doing something differently in alignment with how you do it, rather than trusting their own expression. And that there's something deeply tied to these cultures of achievement that invites that kind of judgment and separation. Yeah, and you, it should be in your language and in your framework of thinking, <laughs> your religion, your goal. Mm. You see, the whole idea of becoming is the act of denial of what you already are. And that hit you like a ton of bricks. It fell on your head. It was, oh, my God, there's nowhere to get to. I am the wonder of the universe. I actually am, factually. It still hits me. <laughs> like a ton of bricks. <laughs> it still hits me like, wait. <laughs> exactly. Uh, you know, on the daily, on the daily, wait, wait, yeah. calm down. You, there, you don't have to do anything. Like, follow what's joyful and yeah. what's loving. And you don't have to do what comes, do what comes from joy, what is yours to do. Now, I will say, in the context of conflict, I have the belief that, you know, a lot of the places of our own suffering create the place where we can best be in service. So if you come up in a situation uh, where you have a violent relationship or you come up in war, or you come up in terrorism or you come up in starvation, then you know the pain of that particular um, condition and you can serve from that with a deeper compassion than someone who's got it as an abstraction layer. So I want to make it clear that the yoga is not then like a denial of the work in the body to help humanity, like you're saying with the Heart of Yoga Peace Project or with uh, your friend who's teaching in the Ukraine, that you don't step away from the problems of culture. You go into them with a peaceful heart. Exactly. It's intimacy with body, breath, and relationship in that order. And then the relationship part, if you're intimate with your own life, with what life is, and then you naturally start feeding others. You do what can be done to you know, end the suffering of others. It just happens naturally. This all life is relationship piece of your work, the piece that you do on God and sex, 
the emphasis you have on positive relating and relationships between men and women, that has also been quite revolutionary. And I'd love to spend some time talking about that. A lot of people come to you in the yoga as couples. I've noticed in your classes and in your coursework and that this approach to yoga seems to not focus on individual, but on the relating and the relationship process. But also of people who are single and longing for uh, friendship, longing for intimacy. You know, we are, we are living in the post-sex era, and it's factually the case. In the U.S., more than half the people are single and not in partnership. In, the, in Japan, that's the leader of the world in this matter. There's not enough births to sustain society for another, you know, after 30 years, there, there won't be enough uh, younger people there to even have a society. And I'm, I'm saying it is there because of the religious presumptions that have been there for centuries now, for many centuries, is that you get to God by going either within or up. <laughs> the religious obsession with ascension, it's also there in yoga cults. You ascend away from relatedness to what is so-called higher. The higher creates a lower. <laughs> and so uh, religious presumption has created a lowness and a vulgarity around sex. You know, if you're still in the village having sex, you're in a lower status than the priest who's gone to the monastery and concentrating on higher things. This created hierarchy in our society and created the vulgarity around sex that we have today. Whereas, in fact, we are biologically fitted to have intimate life with each other. And yoga is that intimacy with life as it actually is. Life as it actually is and in every way be intimate with life as it actually is. And that includes male-female intimacy in same-sex or opposite-sex intimacy, and any gender identification or none at all, we are all formed by the union of opposites. The two are one, you see. Just like there's no such thing as a left without a right. No one's ever seen a left. <laughs> left implies right. Well, male implies female. They are not separate. They are one. All life is formed by the union of the one. Like a tree has a strong trunk, ascending male that resolves in soft, soft, utterly receptive foliage, feminine. But the tree is one thing, you see. Male and female are not separate. They're created as uh, separate ideas, but it's not really there at all. So um, going back to how you teach yoga, and I, I tell all my heart of yoga teachers around the world, is please just prioritize the teaching of asana and pranayama. Please, you know, get that as your top priority. Get everybody doing an authentic yoga for themselves. And then as you observed very kindly, the result is peace. The result is restfulness in the whole body, you know. The result is notice, noticing a continuity of the body with its own context, the natural world. And it's an automatic result. And I say also is that there's an automatic result of being able to receive another human being. 
And I say that to emphasize again, whether it's same-sex or opposite-sex intimacy or any gender identification whatsoever, yoga enables us to receive another as well as give to another. See, life is fundamentally the giving and receiving that is the nature of all or life, all form. You know, the Taoists of ancient China, they got that sorted, that there's the Tao, but the Tao is arising as yin and yang, which is the nature of the Tao. It, it is our present, anyone listening to this, it is your present condition. The body is the cosmos. It is perfectly arising as the male-female, as strength that is utterly receptive, that quality that is actual life. This is missing from society in its normal patterning everywhere around the world. And we need to get it in. We need to save the starfish one at a time. But if we save enough, <laughs> we might save them all. Uh, you know, I want to come to that tipping point. It's so sad for us, Christine, you know, that working away in, in the Middle East. You know, we had some stunning success, but at a very local level for individuals. But I want to see that tipping point where this, thank you for mentioning my book, God and Sex, subtitle, Now We Get Both. We get both. That could be any two people talking to each other, two people affectionate with each other. Or it could be society talking, hey, celebration, now we get both. The form, the source and the scene are one. This materiality, the tangible realm is not different from the creator, from whatever is creating the entire cosmos. It is that. And it manifests as yin and yang, male, female. In all creatures, in all in the plant realm, is that I was just reading the, the that kiss of the yogini, which is talking about eighth century tantra, and somewhere in the middle they say, you know, because there's all these old temples that have these orgiastic sex scenes carved into the side of the temple, and their core teaching was any culture that doesn't worship sex, that doesn't hold that as part of their sacred tradition, is dead, that it doesn't have any life anymore because that's the source of life. And I thought that was like quite bold to say. Then that's a scary statement, is dead. And that's what we're seeing. Yeah. You know, where we can't honor God's method on earth, you know, is the union of opposites. So in yourself, um, you're a very tall, male-bodied person, and you are also very sweet. But there's there's a quality of holding the masculine embodiment with a soft and, and and conversational receptivity. And in your partner, she is in a female body, but she is very strong. <laughs> you know? Rosalind. Yeah. yeah. And that there's a quality here of of like you're actually walking and embodying the Ardhanishwara, the half and half masculine feminine in as people. And I wonder if you can speak to that cultivation um for individuals, you know? Yeah, well, thank you. Uh, you know, of course, that is the nature of, I said, all form, <laughs> you know, that everybody has come forth from male and female perfect union and the spark of life that happened in that union and the intelligence that happened in that union. So everybody is male and female. That, that is the nature of life. 
or to use that term, yin and yang. So the asana pranayama, as it came through the tantric period that Krishnamacharya very kindly brought forth, that had disappeared after the 14th century and replaced only by male orthodox power structure. See, we don't get it after the 14th century. What came along was Krishnamacharya's scholarship. And if we do the yoga as he presented it, as this perfect participation of the inhale merging with the exhale, which is strength receiving, which is the male-female qualities of our own embodiment, then spontaneously we receive another. And men, for example, become then receptive. Strength becomes receptive. Strength is for receiving. <laughs> it's, the, it's the purpose of strength, to receive another, not to control another, not to dominate another, not to suppress another, but to receive another. That's what the male is for, for receiving the feminine in same-sex or opposite-sex intimacy or any gender identification whatsoever. What, is that, what does that mean? What does that mean on the daily? For a man to receive, when you say a man is meant to receive, let's put it into practical terms for, for my friend who's a man. What does that mean to receive a woman or receive the feminine? I do say, say because of the patterning that we were born into, a yoga is needed. We need to learn how to do whole body moving and breathing, which is the, you know, the pre-doctrinal religion of humanity. <laughs> that, that was there before human beings made up religion as we see it in the world. Today. So you're seeing it as primarily the receiving the breath. Yes. And and then also receiving the, your person, like attuning to and being open to their presence and their feelings and the shared activity and their signals. So you're not numb. And enjoying their presence. Uh-huh. You know, en enjoying the energy that is you, Christine. You know, I, to receive you, you know, not to teach you, not to dominate you, not to tell you how you should be, not to therapize you. <laughs> That'd be nice. I love I... that Dylan song. I don't want, <laughs> not, I don't want to teach you. I don't want to refine you or define you. All I want to do is, baby, is to be with you. To, in other words, to receive you. That wisdom has been all along there, and the, and especially in the art, the art and the music that arrived in the sixties except it wasn't accompanied with the spiritual wisdom of actual practice, of actually receiving each other, of actually receiving the feminine, because this male dominance has been going on for thousands of years through religious orthodoxy. And there needs to be a profound turning in this world to, to receptivity. And that, you know, I have to say is by doing the pre-doctrinal yogas that were there, that was entirely about participating in the nature of reality. And, you know, as male, male and female, as equals and opposites, where one empowers the other in an endless exchange, you know, this is what life is, and it's eternal. It's going on and on. It will never stop. Well, I have hope whenever I speak with you or listen to you that the simple truth of being in a body as breath and deeply connected with all things and awareness of that, that it's that simple of a choice. In the ancient, like in the Christian traditions, they call it metanoia. You just suddenly do that and you change direction. 
it's not even a it, it's grace. Uh, you don't have to cultivate it over a long period of time. You don't have to struggle with it. You just do it, and things happen. And that that gives me hope that we could all just do it, and things will shift. Yeah, it has its own logic. You know, I have a friend Paul in Boston who's at the Episcopalian Church there, and he learned from me. And first, his wife brought him along. <laughs> the the good women, you know, they say, "Hey, my dear husband, you might like to try this." And he has a a high role in the in the we call it the Church of England, the Episcopalian Church in Boston, and he's now teaching. Uh, a yoga class before the sermon. And it's very simple. And he's got a little website called uh, Moving, Breathing, Praying or something. Breath, Prayer, I forget, .org. And it works. It works. It has its own uh, intelligence, this thing. And, uh, you know, and thanks for describing it. When you presented it in your class, you've been doing it for some time now, and you can just, you see how it works. And we, it just works. You do it, and the man, the man becomes, and the woman becomes more receptive of their experience. This understanding starts to dawn that there's not two things. You see, there's not the separate person and the separate object. Consciousness is not a separate thing that is different from it, its own experience. Consciousness and the object of perception is just one thing. You see, there's not two things. And it's yoga that reveals that. Do you ever meet Stephen Paquette? Do you remember him, Jayanta? Yes. Well, he did the Aramaic. He retranslated the Aramaic prayer of the Lord's Prayer into English. And then he said it to the sun salute, to Surya Namaskare. Remember? Do you remember this? It was a thing for quite a while. Yes. You, know, you would inhale yes. and you would receive love and then you bow forward and you give your life, you know, and, and this this beautiful dance where it really did become the experience of a full body prayer um, and tied to the traditions that so many of us came from in the West. Uh, very beautiful. Yes. It needs to be put into our own culture. So you're going to be leading a group in Mexico, at the heart of the Americas, between North America and South America, very soon, right? In a couple of weeks. Can you talk about that? Yeah, and I love it. I call it in the Mayan, in, you know, in the Yucatan. You fly into Cancun, and then you go to the Mayan pyramids. And uh, I, love it. I love calling it the heart of the Americas, because I like to think of the Americas as one continent, North and South. And and since this pandemic, and we've been doing a lot of work online, many people have come from Argentina and Brazil and Peru and Mexico and Colombia. <laughs> and then there's all our U.S. friends and our Canadian friends. And I'm just saying, let's go to the gathering ground at the Mayan pyramids. And I'm saying, please pay in the currency, the equity of your currency. So we want to end that idea of north and south and and uh, distribute the, the equity you know to all people and end that problem for humanity as a sort of a symbolic gesture you know i wish it would actually change things overnight but at least we have to start talking about it now so humanity might survive you know I love this vision that you went during the pandemic virtual, and now you are gridding the planet with yoga 
You have this network of people all around the planet who are practicing and developing a common language so that anywhere you go on earth, you can drop in and practice. Yeah. I love it because people come friends from all over the world. You know, if you meet on Zoom a couple of times or more a week with people from around the world, you soon become friends and you get to know somebody in China or Japan or Brazil or wherever, Beijing, you know, every every country's there. And you have a shared value system and a shared intentionality. Yeah. We had this great idea. We'd have the a kind of a, a United Nations or of yoga where uh, anybody, a country and individuals can become signatories to a, an agreement that the, the, all of our politics and all of our economies are based on the recognition that the globe is a unity. And factually and actually, you, you know, you think of the earth, <laughs> outer space, the earth, and you think of the earth, and then you think of all the people on the earth and all the creatures, and it's obviously a unity. <laughs> yeah. So we have... Any country that recognizes that goes, oh, yeah, okay, we're in. We will base our politics only on that fact. No other fact. No other idea. The world is a unity condition. Let's go on that. We're calling for signatories. You'll be the, you'll be the uh, president. I, I, will, I nominate you. Um, we'll have the, the, the United Nations of yoga. <laughs> I, mean, I, I mean, I love this idea, by the way. Yeah. The idea that your politics will be informed from this collective awareness that we're all tied to this incredible planet. Cool. Well, if you want to hear more of this level of dialogue and discourse and you want to actually see what it's like to not do distracting, elaborate things, but just to focus on your breath and your body and feel the reality of your unity, then go see Mark in Mexico. Uh, and if not that, then find him elsewhere, uh, heartofyoga.com and other places that you can find in the show notes. Uh, we are very blessed to have people carrying these deep traditions forward um, who haven't been corrupted by what we call the yoga industry, who still hold it and say, hey. Uh, and what I, just to throw it in a little bit is what I love is it is done without demonizing those other expressions. If you want to do hot 26 poses, add your Krishnamacharya breathing. If you want to do an advanced Ashtanga practice, add Krishnamacharya's strength receiving. It's so intelligent and it works so well with every other form. The inhale, the exhale, the, the softness and the, and the strength, it's all part of it. And so these two principles can be incorporated into anything in your life. And then everything else is elaboration on those principles, you know. Yeah, everybody's doing their best. And so much of the modern yoga derived from Krishnamacharya. See, so I'm saying you can put these principles into Iyengar and into what Patabi Joyce kindly brought forth, you know, and everybody's doing their best. You can put the principles into the yoga that you know and love, and it makes it efficient, powerful, and safe, and it makes it entirely your own. Uh, we're, but we're also saying that about all all religions too. Please put it into Christianity, put it into Islam, put it into Judaism, because it, it's the practical means by which you enjoy and actualize the beauty of your own culture. Thank you so much. It's always wonderful. I'm so grateful. Bye. I'll see you soon. I love you, Christine. Thank you so much for this time and giving me an opportunity to speak. I'll see you later. 
Well, I'd like to close uh, with a quote from The Art of War and Peace by Michael Bone Steele. In truth, there is only one war. It is the struggle between the power of good and the power of evil in one's own heart and soul. All other wars spring from that source and in the end can only be resolved from within that place. Failing that, humankind continues to struggle on the outward battlefields, vying for power over one another, no matter what the cost in terms of suffering or death. So yeah, the violence humans do to one another in thought and deed is one of the biggest threats to humanity, whether it's state-sponsored on the world stage or in the family or community. So if we believe that, that transformation begins with individual consciousness or constellation of individuals and spread from there, then we know that yoga can provide an ancient and proven approach to transform this consciousness and cultivate nonviolence. These ancient methods and teachings were at the heart of Gandhi, Mandela, and King's nonviolent force for good, and these teachings open minds and hearts to the possibility of peace and new paths to conflict resolution, mental and physical resilience, equanimity, and health. And while the number of practitioners in the West has grown to over 35 million practitioners, and are widely available on YouTube and online and on Instagram, it's still perceived sometimes as a luxury, high up on the hierarchy of needs kind of thing. But in reality, it's a practice most needed where the physical and mental conditions of the world are most harsh, in conflict zones, in times of battle, and in times of grief. And the demand for those teachings is high everywhere in the world. The Heart of Yoga Peace Project got requests from Sudan and Egypt and Afghanistan and Iran and all kinds of places uh, to come and teach. So we see that also here in the U.S. There was a meme the other day that said, oh, you know, it's easy to find your center on your yoga mat. Your real yoga begins when you're sitting and having a conflict with someone. And I thought, wow, you know, we do train on the mat to find our center and to be stable and loving and to hold a difficult posture and keep breathing and not identify with that. And then we can carry that out. Where else are you going to practice? And then you practice with other people and in community. So with all of that said, I want to encourage you, if you're interested in learning more from Mark or being with Mark, and you are on this side of the earth, then uh, consider popping down to Tulum the first week in December and joining his in-person training. You'll find it very lovely. It's His trainings and his retreats are really available to anyone. You don't really need any kind of history in yoga. You just need to have a deep desire for freedom in yourself and to learn how to breathe and move as a practice of freedom. All right, this podcast is brought to you by Rosebud Woman, the company I started to bring more health and wellness to our intimate areas during sexuality and then to the body overall. More reverence, more care. At rosewoman.com, you can find an array of beautiful gifts for women in your life, men too, for that matter. Beautiful soaps, uh, apricot kernel and coffee, and black charcoal soap for detox, and body brushes, and gua sha for fascia on the body, and... I have new candles that are just releasing that are just beautiful, rose and oud one, sandalwood and honey, jasmine and bergamot. Those all make beautiful gifts, as well as our core offerings. Intimate products like Honor Everyday Balm, which gets five-star and it saved my marriage ratings, arousal stimulating serum, which people ascribe as the source of their best orgasms ever, 
Soothe, an all-body care product that really uses plant and wisdom traditions to bring calming and cooling and uh, relief from swelling to the muscles and the skin and other things. So come on over, check out rosewoman.com and fill somebody's stocking with some good body love. And radiantfarms.us where we make kava, kana, ayahuasca vine, bobinsana, gummies and chews uh, for better mental health and well-being through plants. Radiantfarms.us. All right. All love to you and happy thanks living. <laughs>